Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Here we go. We're Drake and Jay talking. You're live midnight to five. Bradley Jay. I'm actually live here. Not pre-recorded. Wearing my festive red wool jacket. Very Christmassy. I still feel like Christmas, even though technically it's seven minutes over. Guest Bob Allison is here, also wearing red in a festive way. Bob Allison is a professor at Suffolk University, and he's on the board over there at the Constitution Museum, which is awesome. Might talk about that a little. And he's on the, you know, the boss, or pretty close to being the boss of Rev 250, which is an organization that organizes events commemorating the events leading up to the revolution. And speaking of the revolution, we're going to talk about something that was happening right now, if I'm right. That's right. Bob, right now, 200 and how many years ago? Well, 1776. So was, do uh, the math, folks. Over 200 years ago. Yeah, really, uh, in the big picture, not that long ago. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. Just, and you think about what a pivotal moment this was. And so the year 1776 is very important to us. It's, of course, the year of the Declaration of Independence, the British evacuation of Boston. So we see this as the birth of America, birth of the United States. However, at the end of the year, it looked like the revolution was over. It looked like the Americans had lost. The British had absolutely uh, clobbered them in New York. So it was the uh, fourth period, maybe this is it. three no. minutes to go. We're yeah, down th- by 13 is, and we yeah. don't have the ball. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> that's, you know, had football existed then, that's what people would have been thinking. It's like being down um, zero to three to the Yankees in the playoffs. And it's up like, to that point, Washington was no Tom Brady. He wasn't Tom Brady. He was no. more, I don't know, who would he, he be? We don't know. I don't know. Someone we'd never heard of. Right, okay. And it looked like his career was over. It looked like, you know, the whole, you know, the Americans had about 30,000 men during the battles for New York. By the time they reached the banks of the Delaware, there were about 2,500. Most of the army had simply melted away. They had deserted. They had gone home because there's no point in being here. We're getting clobbered. And they had gone home and there's no chance that Washington is going to be able to recruit another army the next year because who's going to want to turn out for this? The um, British held New Jersey. They had posted, you know, they chased Washington across New Jersey. And in fact, as they were chasing him across New Jersey, they were playing hunting tunes because they mocked Washington as pretending to be an English gentleman. He liked fox hunting, so we'll show him what a fox hunt is. So they're playing hunting tunes on their trumpets as they're chasing his melting army across New Jersey. He gets to the banks of the Delaware in early December, and he crosses. He has all of the boats brought from the east side of the Delaware to the west side, so the British couldn't chase him any further. And then there he is trying to establish, trying to keep his hold on this. The Congress, knowing that the British are coming to Philadelphia, move out. They go to Baltimore. And they're expecting Washington to hold on, and they're blaming him for the fact that things are going so badly here. So Washington knows he needs to do something in order to not lose the war. And all of the options he has has looked pretty bad, looked pretty bleak. And so he does think about doing something bold. He needs to have some bold strokes. That's one thing that's in his mind. We need to do something. The other thing is um, people in New Jersey, the one reason the British are in New Jersey is because they think 
people in New Jersey, unlike those crazy New Englanders, want to remain loyal to the crown. And is that true? To a large degree, it is. A lot of people do. There are a lot of people sympathetic to the British crown in New Jersey, not as many as the British anticipated. It's not as one-sided as New England is. But one thing that happens, as the British and their German allies march across New Jersey, they do a lot of looting and pillaging. We'll get to that later. Okay. Let's set the scene. That was one of my specific questions I want to know all about. Yeah. Weather-wise, setting the Wayback Machine exactly to right now, years ago, way back, way back, way back, what was the... It was a really cold winter. There was a thing called the Little Ice Age. Yeah, that was part on. of a Little Ice Age. It lasted for a couple hundred years. And so the temperature was cooler. But in December that year, it was that night, it started snowing around midnight. Really heavy snow, heavy, wet snow. And it changes to sleet, it changes to rain, changes back to snow. A wind blows up from the northeast. It's a nor'easter, essentially, that blows in that night. And all that week, the Americans had staged small raids, either across the Delaware or the New Jersey militia going to attack Trenton. So the uh, Germans, the Hessians in, Prince, in Trenton, set up um, lots of patrols. They are really being very careful because they know the Americans are keep attacking them. So they have patrols going out, except that night, it's so snowy. Who's going to come out on a night like this? So the... Um, the weather is miserable. And Washington had planned to have three expeditions cross the Delaware. There's his that's a little bit to the north of Trenton. There's one at the Trenton Ferry, and there's one south of Trenton. His is the only one that makes it across. They decided against the others for well, the, various the, reasons. Well, the, the, the commanders in charge go there, and there's either too much ice on the river, the, we the weather is too bad to do this, and they assume Washington's also calling his off. And so he knows by the time he gets to the other bank of the river, his is the only expedition that's made it. Then he's thinking, should... Conditions the same for Washington as these other two generals, where they just... There's actually his... Wimpy? Well, I wouldn't say they're wimpy. I think the thing is, where he was crossing, there was less ice. The one by the Trenton Ferry, a lot of ice had built up there because there's a waterfall just below it. So the ice had kind of piled okay. up there, so it's impassable for him. And south, the, the ice had frozen a bit more, so he really can't get across. And it's tough for Washington. In fact, um, they really are struggling against this ice that's in, in the river, on the sides of the river, these big floats of ice um, in the middle of it. They're having to break their way through the ice, but they do make it. And how wide is the river and how fast is the river at this point? The Delaware River. The Delaware River. It's about 300 yards wide at the point where Washington crosses. 900 feet. Three hundred. Yeah, so 900 feet. So that's... Uh... Three football fields. Three football fields, yeah. So it's actually not that wide there. It's actually narrower at Trenton, and that's where there's a ferry at Trenton. One reason Trenton is there is because there's easy access across the river. But Is it a fast river? It is a, yeah, it is quite a fast river, yeah. So, so it's pretty difficult to go straight across, right? You're, yeah. You're sliding yeah. down river. Yes, and the, the boats they have, they're using these Durham boats for the most part. That they're long and flat, and they have uh, pointy ends at each side. They look like a long canoe, and they're really used for hauling iron ore or lumber, you know, down to Philadelphia. And they made so you can uh, pole, you have okay. poles to either uh, kind of steer it as you're going downriver or push as you're going upriver. And they're really good for this purpose because they're going trying to go across, but again, you have to pole them. 
And the men doing the work are either John Glover's regiment from Marblehead, and these are experienced sailors. They're the guys who had rode Washington across. Uh, They're not good polers, right? Not really good polers, but so they, know, the, they know boats. Is the river uh, shallow enough so you can pole all the way across? The river's it's about eight feet deep at this point. Eight? Yeah, something like oh, that. Yeah. All right. So it's not you know it's over your head, but uh, you can you know hit the bottom, or they're pulling along the ice. Actually, oh god, they, they have, rowing and pulling. They do pulling? have some oars. There are some oars, and some of them have masts. But the masts with their sails would have been useless on a night like this. They also have some ferry boats, and the ferries would operate by having a cable underneath that the ferry would be on. And that also you would pull to get across, and that's to carry the horses and the artillery across the river. The men are all in these Durham boats or in some smaller boats that they've commandeered. It's quite an operation to get all of this stuff. You know, about uh, 1,200 men and 18 pieces of artillery, horses across the river without the enemy knowing that you're coming. And they're doing this in the midst of this storm. And they're, you, typically these boats did have a foot or so of slushy, icy water in the hulls of them. The men are standing in this, and they're making their way across this river in the night when there's this fierce storm, one of the worst storms any of them had ever experienced. And here they are crossing this river uh, to go and attack Trenton. This is a lot to ask, but do you happen to know about how many men would be in one of these boats? How, how long were the boats? How many men? Some of the some boats were, were 40 feet, some were 60 feet. Wow. So, yeah, they're so big the, boats. They're big boats. There may be um, 40, 60, 80 men in a boat. With all their big, long flintlock yeah. rifles, yes. ammunition, mm-hmm. stuff they get to carry. What other stuff would they be carrying? Well, they, they, have, they have the cannon yeah. and the shot, the guns, but... What other baggage does a soldier need? Well, he needs uh, provisions for three days. They right. had provisions for three days. They had their each man had about sixty cartridges too. But when they get to the other side, I mean, the cartridges get wet. The powder gets wet, so those become pretty much worthless. Uh, they didn't bring any tents, but they were and and they could follow each other because few of them had shoes or the shoes were broken, so they were leaving bloody footprints, a trail of bloody footprints. They were a lot tougher than people are today, right? I think they were. Those who survived really were. Bloody footprints. And, and the thing that is really astonishing, when they get to the other side, the men are in very high spirits. They're happy to be At doing something. At least they're doing something. They're excited to be doing something. One guy tells the story. They get to the other side, and they're waiting. It takes about two hours to unload everybody. And so they build fires. They take some fences, and they build fires. And one guy says, you know, he would stand facing the fire, and his front would warm up. His back would be freezing. Then he would turn around. His face would freeze. So he said he stood there for about an hour just spinning Felt around, good. spinning around, you know, so to warm all over. So one great thing about the storm is you could have a fire because nobody's going to see it more That's than true. half a mile yeah, away. Yeah, We and better break and uh, continue with Bob Allison talking about this ma- sort of seminal, magical event of so many years ago on this very night. WBZ, we continue with Bob Allison talking about an event that happened right now as we speak many years ago, the crossing of the Delaware Big victory, much-needed victory for uh, General Washington and the future U.S. Bob Allison is here with us. This is, this is what he does. He knows all about this stuff. And we're talking about the uh, just as they were crossing now, sort of yes. talking about the crossing. One thing to spend some time on would be the artillery. Yes. 18 pieces? 18 pieces uh, of artillery. Okay. And they were herded by Henry Knox. Yeah. Who I, I think we need to spend some time yeah. on because you know he Washington gets all the credit, but Knox, really a, a stand-up guy, yes. hard you know hard guy, yeah. sticks with with Washington. He, a he, he's super loyal 
Mm. And B, he gets the job done where other generals yeah. doubt Washington yeah. and other generals just don't uh, execute yeah. well. Yeah. This guy Knox is the guy. He is the guy. And in fact, he is logistically in charge of the operation. You know, Washington is the commander in chief, but he puts Knox in charge of making sure they get over. And so Knox is supervising not only the artillery, but the men. And each piece of artillery weighs about 1,200 pounds. So these are pretty significant, um, a significant undertaking. So Knox is really the one directing all of this uh, logistically. He is Washington's right hand in this. And in fact, um, about a week later, Knox will be, become a general. Congress will create the position of a general in charge of artillery because Knox is really arguing to use artillery a bit differently. Instead of having the infantry march forward and then you have the artillery brought up, he has the artillery actually leading. And he creates really lighter pieces of artillery, actually lighter carriages so that they're easier to transport. And so each of these infantry units has a couple of pieces of artillery ahead of it so that then they can be put into place. They're much more mobile. It's actually the similar test strategy that Napoleon is going to use, using artillery more effectively. And Knox is really seeing the importance of artillery in a different way here. So he's bringing these 18 pieces of artillery, something that the Hessians definitely didn't expect the Americans to do. If they're going to stage a raid, they're not going to bring artillery because it's so heavy. Is this artillery that came from uh, Dorchester Heights? Some of it might have. Some of, some of it might have. Knox is also arguing we need to create an armory that can create artillery. And he, yeah. you know, later that winter, he is going to go up to Springfield and begin the creation of the Springfield Armory. CCC and over the objections of John Hancock, who also objects to Knox becoming a general. Why? He was a bookseller. And Hancock, you know, what, how's this guy get to become a general Wait. and I'm not? Oh, right. So, was, it, was this Hancock being all patrician? Yeah, yeah. Hancock was being a bit patrician in, in this. So Knox is still, he's only in his mid-20s. And he is, as you said, the, the stand-up guy who is loyal to Washington and also has an understanding of the use of artillery in a military capacity. You know, the Hessians, um, Colonel Rall, who was the Hessian commander in Trenton, had not built any batteries to protect Trenton. Instead, he had all the artillery in the middle of the town, and when they needed it, they would you know, bring it out. Knox has some of his artillerymen come without pieces of artillery, but they have the tools they'll need to fire artillery because Knox's plan is to capture some of their artillery, which he does. They capture about four pieces of the artillery from the um, Hessians, and actually during the battle, they uh, run at, they uh, charge at an artillery position, drive off the Hessians, they capture their um, their, can their brass cannon, and then turn it around. Sweet. Yeah. And they're already hot, warmed up. Back to Knox. He has a record of getting things done under hardship, yes, which, is, which is a big deal. Yeah, that's right. He brought the cannon from uh, Fort Ticonderoga to Dorchester Heights back in the winter of 1775-76, which forced the British out of Boston. And now he is going to be responsible for determining where to place the artillery when they get to Trenton so that they actually have command of the streets, putting at the head of the streets so that when the Hessians come out into the streets to try to counterattack, they're being mowed down by artillery. And actually, Henry Knox is shocked at the carnage. This is one of the closest battles he sees, and it's about an hour and a half of this intense fighting. He says, you can't picture anything this side of hell. And he says, those who are here today are going to pay for it in the next life. That is, he sees the real horror of this war as they're you know, using the artillery to mow down people, but this is his job. 
And the, this is one reason why the Hessians are going to surrender is because they're really overmatched by the artillery that the Ameri and, and also the Americans not having um, the powder being wet. They're charging at them with bayonets, which is something the Americans at, to this point had not done. So the powder was wet? Powder gets wet in the rain, yeah, and the snow. Jeez. And so what do we do? In fact, General Sullivan, who is leading one of the columns, sends a message to Washington saying, hey, our powder is wet. What should we do? He'd already decided what we have to do is attach bayonets to the ends of our muskets and you know use the bayonets. The artillery will be used to soften up the enemy, and then we'll charge with the bayonets, which is a different style of fighting. Jeez. So there were no that's, – that's interesting to know. Charlie changes the whole thing. There was no shooting of rifles. There was some. Some, some, and actually, no, they didn't have rifles. They would have had muskets. Muskets. But there's very little firing because most of the powder is wet. There is some. In fact, the first German officer who sees this approaching enemy, they, as I said, the German, the Hessians had set up uh, posts around Trenton, and these guys had been on patrol constantly for the previous week because there had been raids across the river, raids from the New Jersey militia, and... He comes out, it's about a um, little after 7 in the morning on the 26th of December, and he sees some soldiers coming down the road, and he thinks this must be one of our patrols coming back. And then he sees there are more of them, and more of them. Well, it's too big to be a patrol. Could it be a raiding party? And then one of them levels his musket and fires. And he knows this isn't, a, this isn't just a raiding party because by this time there are more than 100 guys coming out. And he's in a little guardhouse with about 50 or 60 Germans who had, had been on patrol, and he yells, Der Fiend, Der Fiend, you know, the enemy, the enemy, and they all fall out, but then they have to retreat because so many are coming at them, and they retreat back into Trenton, and they raise the alarm. Washington, in fact, is leading this first charge at this um, German guardhouse, and as they are doing this, he hears way off to the right the sound of firing, and he knows that Sullivan has made it there. Now, this has been hours before. It takes them about four hours to march from where they get off to Trenton. Washington had all the officers synchronize their watches. It's one of the first times this happens. Yeah. They all go by with the time on his watch, and then, but they happen to come at the same time. You got, think about all the things that had gone wrong. Got lucky that time. Lucky, but... Uh, Not lucky. Okay. So... The powder was wet in the rifles, uh, the muskets or the flint. Yeah, the flint, yeah. How do they keep the cannon powder dry? Is it easier to do? Somewhat, yeah. And the cannon powder— No plastic bags? No, no ziplocs? No, they didn't have Ziploc bags for it. But they're, it's, they're, it would have been in chests. And because okay. there's more of it and a bigger charge, you know, with a, a musket, you have a very small amount of powder. So oh, if that gets wet— individually wrapped in a yeah, paper yeah. thing. Yeah, in a paper thing. That gets wet, it's all done. But with a cannon, you actually have a bigger charge. So and, some could be wet and still yeah, have it yeah, work. Yeah, still work. Yeah. And in fact, the um, cannon that the um, Americans had seized from the Germans, the Germans had already put the charge in it. The Americans then put in load of cannonball oh, yeah. into it. Yeah, so so that, that's right. The germ That's good to know. A couple of minutes. Timeline. I just had mentioned earlier that about 4 p.m. was when Washington said, okay, we're going to do something now. Here's, here's some yeah. stuff. Go get three days' worth of rations. That's pretty late in the day to be telling them what's going on. It was late in the day. So how did the timeline really take a couple hours to get ready? Mm -hmm. And when did they start their crossing? And how long did it take them to get from their, the point where they reached the other shore mm -hmm. to form up? And how long did it take to, to march? And about when did the attack start? 
The attack starts at about 7.30 in the morning, which is oh, about wow. 10 minutes after sunrise. Okay. Washington had wanted it to start about in two hours before sunrise. So he knows they're way behind schedule. They're getting in the boats around 11 o'clock, midnight, wow. 1 o'clock. And then it takes about two hours to cross. They're all not across until about 3. And then they're all not formed up until about 4. And then they have about a nine-mile march um, from the crossing place, which is now known as Washington's Crossing. Then it was McConkie's Ferry. And it's about a nine-mile march to Trenton along these two different roads. Perfect time to break. We have a couple more segments with Bob Allison talking about this big event that happened right now so many years ago. It's WBZ. 617-2. You know, we'll take a call. I guess one call. If somebody really wants to call, 617-254-1030. We're with Bob Allison talking about Washington crossing the Delaware, which happened tonight exactly now, 1776. 243 years. 243 years ago. Okay. So we get across. Before we finish up on the crossing, you, you were talking about any, any people die. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In the crossing itself? In the crossing itself, no. A couple of guys die from exposure answer on the march then to Trenton because it is so cold. They sit down by the side of the road, fall asleep. There's another guy who recounts that he had sat, sat down to take a rest and someone came along and got him moving. And he said, had he not, he would have also um, frozen to death. How are they decked out? Do they have heavy wool coats or do they have gloves? Are they No, they're, they don't have really good They don't uniforms. even have shoes. They don't have shoes. They don't have stocks. They had just gotten a load of blankets sent up from Philadelphia, which are really helpful. That's, but these guys— they're, How they're, can you not have shoes? Isn't that, doesn't that blow you away? It does. It really does. Yeah, and it's a persistent problem with them, not having shoes, not having uniforms. Some of them have really good uniforms. Some of them don't. Or they've been on the march for so long that the uniforms they have are in tatters. Remember, this is the end of a long year, and these guys had to provide all of their own stuff, and now the stuff is falling apart. So, yeah, and as I said, they're leaving these trails of bloody footprints along the, along the way. And it's uh, really an, a remarkable that so, that so few died. It's also remarkable that so few stayed. Exactly, yeah. Would you stay, folks? Yeah. If, you know, fighting and freezing snowy yeah, weather yeah. with no shoes yeah yeah i mean and you're home it's not like you're in korea no, you could yeah. walk home that's right the germans can't walk home but these guys can some of them had and they and washington knows the enlistment's going to be up in a week and they're not going to come back and in fact after this when he's preparing he knows after this after they've defeated the hessians in um, trenton and then they attack the british come and counterattack in fact they take trenton in early January, the Second Battle of Trenton, and then Washington counterattacks and actually just defeats them at Princeton. It's a remarkable thing that he does in early January. And then he knows, okay, the enlistments that came in December, now they're up, and he's trying to get them to stay. He actually offers them $10 if they stay. and Which he, he didn't have. He didn't have. He, but he's using, he's committing his own money to this. And 
this is a remarkable story of Washington gathering the men and saying, well, who will stay now? And no one steps forward. And so he turns and he says, all right, 10 bucks. He said, hey, 10 bucks. Also, he said, I can't ask you to do any more. I know you've done all you can. I can't ask you to do any more. I will get another $10 for you. And they see how committed he is. The thing about Washington is he has been with them throughout all of this. He's been leading them. He has been there. So about um, 1,000 of them then do stay. And they're getting more recruits after Trenton. Well, there's a, a British officer down in um, – he's actually a loyalist down in Virginia. And he's writing in December about how all of this seems to have fallen apart because no one's joining now in this county in Virginia. And then they get the news of Trenton, and suddenly there are more men joining than they can take in. They're raising more regiments because the news of Trenton, that they actually can fight, they actually can win. All right, they get across. They f- takes a couple hours. Everybody gets ready. They form up into two columns under two generals. Washington goes with one general. Eight men across. They march. Mm-hmm. Anything remarkable about the march itself to, to talk about? A couple of things. One, Washington does send out advance parties to make sure – no one is crossing the line. He doesn't want someone to say, hey, I just saw the American army come. Right, of course. And, or go and alert the British sentries who are in Bordentown or in uh, Princeton that there's this big army coming. So he's actually arresting a lot of people. Anybody he sees it's like, sorry. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we're holding you here until this is over. Another thing, there's a big ravine they need to cross, uh, Jacob's Creek. And they have, it's about a 100-foot drop down to this uh, stream. Then they have to cross the stream and bring everything up the with other the, side. With the um, artillery. Yeah, with the artillery. Oh, man. And they have to tie the artillery so that it won't overrun the horses. And again, Knox had done this he's, when he's he getting across the bridge. He has experience with this. How, how you get do. artillery across uh, steep places. But as they're forming on the other side, one of the soldiers sees Washington is on his horse, and suddenly the horse's feet start slipping down the side of the ravine. Oh, no. And Washington grabs the horse's mane, and he squeezes himself onto the horse, lets the horse back up so he can get his footing, and then comes up. I mean, Washington was a superb horseman. But you see someone doing this. You know, this guy really knows how to handle a horse. He's someone you would follow. And the, th- the consistent things you see in this, one uh, is Washington leading, and the other is the sound of Henry Knox's voice as they're crossing the river. Knox his booming voice across the river. He's organizing this, getting the men across. The MFA has the wonderful painting of the Delaware crossing. And you see at the top of the hill, Washington, Henry Knox, James Monroe, and Billy Lee, and the men going down to the Delaware River. It's a terrific scene. I mean, there, there are these two great paintings of this because right. this becomes Kitty such a- corner to each other, right? Yeah. There's yeah. the big, yeah. yeah. All right, Bobby in South Carolina. He'll, you'll be our one call. How you doing, Bobby? I get to say uh, Merry Christmas to you oh, guys. This is your bo- this is Bobby in, in Merry Char- Christmas, Charlestown. Bobby. Charlestown. Yeah. Merry Christmas, Professor Allison. How you doing, Bobby? It's great to listen to. You. Good, thanks. I'm having a great vacation with my family down here. Oh, great! The weather was raining for a little, but it's real nice today, and tomorrow's going to be nice. It's great listening to you, and um, you pick up where David McCullough ends off at 1776, like um. He briefly mentions going into Valley Forge and then talks about Washington offering them all ten bucks, yeah. get a bonus. Yeah, but um, I I never realized um, what they went into Trenton for, how how extensive it was. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I I like I like to seventeen how the greatness of um, 
John Glover, Colonel John yes, Glover, yes. and the Marblehead Mariners. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, he's a great writer. Let I me let me to... let, let me recommend David Hackett Fisher's book, Washington's Crossing. Fisher, F I S C H E R, which really yeah. is superb. It is from the siege of Boston really to um, Washington taking control of New Jersey, and it's real uh, probably one of the best books written about the American Revolution. And David Hackett Fisher, Fisher yeah. He's a professor of okay. Brandeis. Thanks for checking yeah. in, Bob. I don't have much time, but I'm glad, hey, one last I'm, I'm glad thing. it was you. I just you. want to say thank, thanks for everyone, and uh, Merry Christmas, and I'll see you back in Boston soon. Merry Christmas, Merry Bobby. Christmas. And by the way, the rest of you, when you're doing your shout-outs to your pals, and I tell you to shout-out to somebody else, Bobby from Charlestown, he's the guy you should be shouting out to. All right. We're marching in, and then we arrive about 7 a.m., and mm-hmm. they start to tiptoe probably. Yes. Shh, yeah. They're sleeping. Uh, did were they found out by a sentry? Did somebody go, "Hey, it's a bunch of soldiers"? Yes. Or did they, were they able to open fire without being caught? No, they first uh, oh, the sentry spots them. The sentry at this first guard post and it's the guard post on the west side of town. Any they, idea how far away they might have been? Like a half a mile or a hundred yards? It's it's probably about half a mile or more. I mean, it's not a hundred yards. Oh, oh, do you mean the sentries from each other or the soldiers? No, sentry. From- how far away were they? The well, soldiers. the first sentry, they each side fires at the other, but they're too far away to have any real okay. impact. Okay. And then these other the sentries come out and they try to make a stand, but the Americans are coming closer and they're getting their artillery ready. So the sentries fall back into Trenton, actually on both sides. And by this time, the Americans are putting the artillery in place. And also they have an artillery battery on the other side of the river that have been kind of harassing the British all week. And they open fire too. And... Um, Colonel Rawl had actually was sleeping, and someone goes to wake him up, and he doesn't quite know what's happening. He's the Hessian. He's the, he's the colonel in charge boss. of Trenton, and mm-hmm. he underestimated the Americans. He thought they're a bunch of peasants; they'll never be able to defeat real German soldiers, and so he hadn't put up any artillery batteries around town. Did the, the German soldiers have the pointy, you know, Kaiser helmets and things? These didn't. Uh, they did have helmets. In fact. The State Archives has a Hessian helmet that was captured at Bennington, and it uh, doesn't have the pointy Kaiser helmet. That's a little bit later. These were kind of flat, and they look like the big hats that the uh, British troops would have worn. They have a metal plate on the front, and they're not meant to protect your head. They're meant to make you look tall. Bigger and more imposing. Yeah, yeah. So so they they don't have the same uh, Kaiser helmets, unfortunately. And again— this fight is a bayonet face-to-face. Yes, yes, yes. I don't understand why, how the future Americans did so well, you know, against these trained troops. That's a very good question. And it's one of the real puzzles. I think these guys had some more experience now. I mean, they had fought in New York. So they're not as untrained as they had been. And they're not as well-trained as they later will be. But they also knew how important it was to win this one. They had lost so much, and this is their chance to do something. So motivation, big factor. Yeah. yeah. And also, one of the really remark- amazing things in this is you had also seen in New Jersey, a place that the British thought was uh, completely loyal, the fact that the Germ- that Germans and the British had done so much looting really brings people out. The militias in Hunterdon County, New Jersey, and in Burlington County, New Jersey, really mobilize. 
and they've been harassing the British. But these guys now are really eager. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. ...to fight and prove that they can do this. And they have real confidence in their leaders, and much more confidence, I think, than the Germans have in theirs. And when Colonel Rall is actually mortally wounded, that pretty much ends it for the Hessians. They realize they should probably surrender. And Rall hasn't been able to, hadn't thought to, send a message to one of the, either the British officer at Maidenhead, New Jersey, or the other Hessian officer down didn't in Didn't have time. Didn't have time. Also didn't like them. These guys didn't like each other. That was okay. another real problem for the British. How did Rall die? Bayonet? Uh, he shot. Shot. Uh, shot off his horse, yeah. Um, shot off of his horse, and um, he's mortally wounded, dies later that day. Um, yeah, it's— um, and, So they're on their heels from the get-go. Yeah. I think motivation is a key thing. It is. They had a lack of motivation. Yeah. They, you know, they, they didn't really have a dog in the fight. No. It was just for money, and man, who yeah. wants to die yeah. for a few bucks? Yeah. And it was cold, and they just were. Pro- and you mentioned something kind of interesting earlier, and then we'll take a break. If you could say it on the air, talking about how the the Hessian prince uh, gets paid by the British to send soldiers, he gets paid a lump sum. If the soldiers mm-hmm. don't come home, if they die, he keeps the money. And it's also, just, he gets he gets paid for the ones who die. He gets significant. He doesn't, if they come home, he has to pay them. So it's actually to his advantage to send them, and and the British government is paying them paying uh, from Brunswick, from Hesse, and from um, another of the German principalities to send troops. Benjamin Franklin writes an essay about this, a satire about this this uh, trade in soldiers. He compares it to the slave trade because the prince is basically selling his people off to go to America and die. And it's to his advantage to have them die rather than have them come home. And about 800 are taken prisoner at Trenton and they're, simply, they're brought back across the river, and then Washington doesn't have a place to keep them. So he has, says, march south, and he sends them to Maryland and Virginia, to towns there that will take them in. I know at least one person whose ancestors, are, he's here because his ancestor was captured at Trenton, was sent to Maryland and decided to stay. And Franklin had had these little cards printed up in German, put in tobacco pouches sold in New York. So if you're a German soldier, you buy a pack of tobacco, there's a card in it telling you the advantages you'll have if you desert. Could uh, we have just hired them after catching them? Say, you know what? Here's some money. Yeah. Instant instant army? Yeah. They don't. They didn't really have any loyalty Not to really. the British, did they? Yeah, but then um, there are Germans fighting on the American side, Germans who are in uh, from Pennsylvania or Maryland. But no, once you're captured, typically you sign a parole that you're not going to fight for either right. side. Can't really be trusted. Yeah, yeah. So, no, you're really not going to put them to work. Although here in Massachusetts, a number there are a number of towns that do have – German prisoners of war, and they wind up doing a lot of work. And in fact, we see town records. The town is uh, writing, saying, hey, can we get some Germans? Because they're very industrious people. And we'd... <laughs> All right, let's break and talk about the spoils of this battle, which is significant, and the, uh, you know, the after effects. It's WBZ. Continuing, talking about the crossing of the Delaware, Washington's crossing. It's taking place right now. 
243 years ago, right? Was that That's the, right. Was that it? 243 years ago. Bob Allison is with us, historian, great uh, friend of the show here. And if you just joined us, uh, the battle is over, basically. And um, I wanted to find out in the short time we have left. First, what were the spoils? What did we capture? We. We. <laughs> Our team. Yeah, we were there. Yeah. Well, about four to eight pieces of artillery. That's all about- they had? Yeah, yeah. And we had 18? Well, they disabled others. And then about, yeah, they didn't bring as much artillery as the Americans did. Wow. And also about eight to 900 prisoners and their stuff. Another thing that happens, as I said, the Hessians had been looting, and they were planning to send a lot of stuff back. And they're grabbing you know, grandfather clocks, other things, in addition to the cattle, the sheep, the other kind oh, of Oh, so they were raping. For, they were also were raping, yeah. And... This is something that really turns the people of New Jersey off from them, the fact that they are so brutal. And when Washington finally does regain control of Trenton, he puts notices in the New Jersey newspapers about all of the stuff that is here. And if you're missing something, come and get it. Come and get it. (laughs) Of course, it's something that's going to make him look a lot better to the people of New Jersey. And the German, the British, um, actually the general, the general in charge of the British operation in New Jersey was a General Grant, whose main attribute was he was really able to curry favor with his superiors, who loved him because he really looked out for his superiors. He also traveled with a big retinue of servants and staff. He had a chef. He made the chef sleep in the same room with him, so General Grant could tell the chef what he wanted to have for dinner the next day and could share his menu ideas with him. He's a rather portly fellow. Um, and there's a great distrust among these different staff officers, the Germans, the British, and it's something that really works to the advantage of the Americans. And the British had chased Washington across New Jersey, and they set up these posts at Trenton, at Princeton, you know, uh, all the way back to Brunswick, New Jersey, and they thought that's pretty much it. And by the end of the winter, in fact, Cornwallis was on a boat ready to go home to England, and then he hears about Trenton, he gets off the boat, and he is the one who leads the expedition across New Jersey to try to catch Washington. He fails to do this. And uh, later on, you know, Cornwallis is the one who surrenders at Yorktown, the last big battle of the war. And after the surrender, the officers, the German, the French, the American, the British officers have dinner, and they're toasting each other. And Cornwallis toasts Washington, saying that, History will record your deeds on the banks of the Chesapeake, but brighter shining are your deeds on the banks of the Delaware. True. So the next day, takes them all day to get back, and then yep. on January 2, they return to Trenton to what? Well, they return to Trenton because the British are coming back. They had Washington had come back to try to establish a base in Trenton, and Cornwallis is coming back to Trenton. Washington knew that the real objective the British have the British want to take Philadelphia. The British are kind of slow to see their real objective should be capturing Washington's army. And Washington's army is really the only thing standing between the American, be, between the British and, and American independence. Everything, yeah. exactly. And it's, he is coming to realize that, that his army is the important thing. And he's come back to try to hold Trenton. And Cornwallis comes back to Trenton and his men, his, some of his officers suggest we should go and attack Washington now. It's late in the day, and Cornwallis knows his men are exhausted, but he also underestimates the ability of Washington. He does say that uh, we have the old fox trapped. We'll bag him in the morning. 
Washington hears from one of his officers that there is actually a back road that could get Washington's army to Princeton. And the British army is stretched now between Trenton and Princeton. Some of the forces are still in Princeton. And Washington has the men who are in their um, camps on the banks of the Assunpink Creek, which runs uh, through Trenton. It's on the south part of Trenton. And they are fortified there, but this overwhelming British force is now across the creek. Washington has his men who are there in their fortifications build bigger fires, make noises like we're digging in, make the British think that we're staying, and then meanwhile the rest of his army is taking this back road out of Trenton. And early the next morning when Cornwallis is preparing to attack Washington in Trenton, hears the sound of gunfire and cannon fire in Princeton. And he realizes that Washington has escaped, and his army now is attacking the rear of the British army. Uh-huh. And now Cornwallis has to turn his army around to chase Washington. And Washington defeats the British at Princeton. In fact, he does send uh, Henry Knox sends one cannonball through Nassau Hall at Princeton, and it, the British are using this as a base. It decapitates the portrait of King George III in Ooh. Nassau Hall. It wasn't what they were intending to do, but it actually sends a message to the British. It's a good story. And the Washington thinks he actually could attack the British camp at Brunswick, where they have most of their stuff, but his men are also exhausted. They've now been on the march for a week. And so instead of that, Knox knew about Morristown being a good place to set up camp. So Cornwallis' army is also exhausted and feels worse now, having been beaten again by Washington, who's escaped. Washington sets up his camp at Morristown, which is in a mountainous area in the northern part of, of New Jersey. And at that point, Washington really has control of the most of New Jersey, except for the area around New York, but then can send out parties to attack every British foraging party in New Jersey, something they had been doing to the Germans around Trenton. And in this forage war, as it's called, in the spring of 1777, the British actually lose more men than they had at Trenton or Princeton. One, We don't have time to spend any time on it, but one myth is that the Hessians were drunk. They were not. Absolutely not drunk. No, they were very good soldiers. They had been on patrol. They were exhausted because they had been under attack and under real strain because, to prevent an attack. So, no, they're not drunk. Bob Ellison, thank you so much as always. Thank you, Bradley. A Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you. You know, after hearing this story, you got to ask yourself, really, which was America's greatest generation? I mean, maybe this one was actually the greatest. I mean, it's something to talk about. It is. It's WBZ, and uh, Andrew's working the wheel here. Uh, I'll talk to you after this. Thanks again, Bob. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.